Well, good morning, church. It's such a joy to worship God together. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm chapter 96. We continue this series entitled Seeing God in the Psalms, and we've been looking at aspects of God's character one after another, the God who keeps and sustains and restores and seeks the outcast and instructs us and and so on. And this morning, we're going to look at the God who is worthy. This psalm sets its gaze directly on the worth and glory and beauty of God. And so that's what we're going to study. This um, this psalm was composed, it has an interesting Old Testament background, so it was composed, and go back and you could read in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 where the Ark of the Covenant is being brought from the house of Obed-Edom and it's being relocated to where it really belongs. It's being relocated in the, in the city of David, transported right into Jerusalem and it was... Uh, It was a huge moment of celebration. There were trumpets blasting, there were priests in linen garments, and David was, the king himself, was walking along with that processional and that parade, and there was sacrifices offered, it was loud, there was dance and joy, because it represented God coming to his city to reign over his people. The the Ark of the Covenant was an emblem, was a symbol of the residing presence of God. And so if that Ark is in a closet somewhere in Obed-Edom and the people of God are in the city of Jerusalem, something's wrong. God's throne belongs here among his people in Jerusalem. And so there was, there was great joy and singing and dancing. And this is the moment where King David sort of threw off all restraint and he danced in, in such a way that it was, it was profoundly embarrassing to his wife and she kind of gave him the side eye. And you can read that whole thing in 1 Corinthians, uh, rather, not 1 Corinthians, that's a different side of the Bible, Chronicles chapter 16. So an incredible moment, a loud moment, but really... This psalm, it doesn't just point backward to this this road trip of the Ark of the Covenant toward Jerusalem. It points forward to something that Israel never even saw in its time. They never saw the fullness of the things that are described in Psalm 96. This, This psalm sends its arrow flying all the way over into the end of the Bible. Things that we are still looking forward to, that are still awaiting us, the blessed hope, the coming reign of Jesus Christ where he establishes his throne not over just one local jurisdiction but he establishes his throne over the cosmos. And that's what Psalm 96 is pointing to. So with that, by way of introduction, go ahead and follow along as I read. Verse one. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe or give, give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth tremble 
before him. Say among the nations, what a perfect morning to sing this. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord. For he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. I'm not sure how many here are old enough to remember anything notable or significant about the year 1993. So it's easy for me because that happens to be the year that I graduated from high school. So I, there are certain things that you just remember your senior year in high school. So the, the show Cheers ended its 11-year run in 1993. Michael Jordan retired from the NBA in 1993. The Beanie Baby was created in 1993. I didn't take a particular interest in that personally, but it was the year for that. Hollywood generated films from the timelessly significant Schindler's List to the timelessly silly Robin Hood Men in Tights. Uh, we watched all kinds of interesting events unfold on our screens as the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Maybe you remember seeing scenes from that. Maybe you saw Joe Carter won the World Series for the Toronto Blue Jays. It was a two and two count. He hit a three run home run at the end of the game. All kinds of things, there are too many things to name in that year, but then, sort of in a Christian corner of the world, it was also the year that John Piper wrote a very small little book called Let the Nations Be Glad, in which he said this, mission is not the ultimate goal of the church, worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of God's glory. 1993 was a good year. <laughs> we heard that truth in 1993. And, and in a sense, Psalm 96, if you crystallized, if you distilled it into one sentence, it might be that sentence. Worship is the fuel and goal of mission. They are not in an adversarial relationship. Worship and mission are, are friends. Worship is fueling it and worship is the destiny toward which missions aims. And our passage, I think, unfolds that truth in three stages. Number one, a singing people. A singing people. You just think about the, the real estate that's given in the book of Psalms. I mean, it's right here in the middle of your Bible is a 30,000 word hymnal in the middle of your Bible. It's three times longer than Mark's gospel. Aren't there things that you kind of wish Mark would have gone on? Tell us more. Tell us how Jesus made you know, tables. Like We want to know about his life and his, his childhood. right? You just take more time. Let the, let the poets defer time to the gospel writers. right? You, we could have had 
three times the length of the book of Revelation, right? All you end times people, you would have had so much more material to fuss and argue about if we had three more books of Revelation. Four times longer than the book of Romans. We could have had so many, you carnivores, you Romans carnivores, you could have had all this meat, right? But we've got, we've got a Bible full right in the middle of poems, the third largest book in the entire Bible. Ultimately, God was the senior editor of the scriptures, right? So he's in charge of the balance of what literary styles we have in the Bible. So you might ask the question, why so much singing? Now, why does that have to sit right here in the center, 30,000 words strong of singing, over 500 references to singing in the Bible, over 100 direct commands to sing? Well, the first thing that we see in Psalm 96 is is this point, God commands his people to sing. Singing matters if for no other reason than God takes the time to command us to do it over and over and over again. And this, this first verse tells us to sing to the Lord a new song. What does that mean? It doesn't mean don't sing old songs. The point is it's not enough to just remember the past. It's not enough, we're supposed to do that, but but that's not sufficient. We've already looked at Psalms that talk about remembering the past. So many of the Psalms point back to, for example, in Psalm 89, which we studied a few weeks ago, point back to that great mighty act of deliverance, the Exodus where God broke the shackles of Egypt and led his people out into freedom, into the, into the wilderness and then he provided for them there and water came in the desert and, and he spoke to them and he gave them his law and his word, right? The, the, the institution of Passover was God's way of saying, don't you ever forget what happened when I broke the chains that held you for 450 years. I'm not gonna let you forget it. Passover is gonna remind you week after week of what I did for you to redeem you and save you from bondage to Pharaoh, right? But then this same God says to that same people in places like Psalm 33 and 40 and 98 and 96 and 144 and 149, he says, sing new songs. It's a command, I want you to sing new songs. Why? Because because God's mercies aren't all centuries old. His mercies are new, how often? Every morning. His mercies are new every morning and new mercies call for new songs. They require, they command new music. And so there are, you know, you think about this, there are many vital signs that we read in the Bible that you can, you can help determine how healthy is the church of Jesus Christ in our age and in our culture. One that we might not consider very often is this as a sign of vitality. Are new songs being written by the church? of our age. It's a command. Sing to the Lord a new song. And to be sure, singing here isn't just literal singing. So you notice the parallelism that's here right in these first couple of verses. So remember how we studied several weeks back the way that ancient poets used parallelism. So sometimes that one of the really popular forms is where line B restates line A in different words. So they're saying the same thing in different words. So look at verse two, for example. Line A, sing to the Lord, bless his name. Line B, proclaim his salvation from day to day. That word proclaim is the word from which we get the word evangelize. He's saying, 
publish his salvation, make known his salvation. In other words, spreading the gospel is a means of worship. It's a means by which we praise our God. You, you think about this, for example, in marriage. So, so in my own marriage, there are two ways, at least two ways that I can praise my wife. I can tell her she's awesome, or I can tell you she's awesome. Either way, I'm praising my wife. In a similar sense, I can sing directly to the Lord and tell him how great he is, or I can go out among the nations and tell them how great he is, and either one, both of them count for exalting God, magnifying, making much of God. There's more than one way to praise his name. The, the idea of calling the nations to worship, calling the Gentiles, calling those outside of the kingdom to worship, it comes up in verse one, two, Three, seven, ten, it is all over this psalm. That's why I said at the beginning that this psalm connects worship to missions. There's a missionary heartbeat all over this passage. So there's, there's a sense in which the word sing in Psalm 96 it can be a metaphor for all kinds of things, including non-musical ways of praising and proclaiming God's Greatness, but, but I think it's really important before we get there, and we'll, get, we'll come to that a little bit more later on, but I think it's really important to not skip over the fact that singing in the Psalms isn't just a metaphor. It's, it's a call to sing literally, like moving your voice up and down with the melody and notes. It's literally a call to sing. So God commands his people to sing. The next thing is God is the audience as we sing. God is the audience as we sing, not only are we commanded three times in the space of two verses to sing, but that command includes a word about who's listening. Look at verse one and two. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Look, our, our singing matters for all kinds of reasons. One, we already said it, God commanded it, and so everything he commands is important. For those who want to follow and obey him, as soon as he says sing, we start singing, right? But it's, this command to sing is important for another reason, and it's this. God listens. God is listening as we sing. I think so much of the, uh, of the casual approach to gathered worship that is so prominent in our culture, I think in part it's born of a basic confusion that this psalm wants to, wants to remedy. And the confusion is this. We think we're the audience. We confuse ourselves and our role with God's position and role. You know how somebody, somebody can give you tickets to a musical? And you've, so you've got free tickets to go to the musical. Tonight, you've got options. You can decide it, that you feel up to it and you wanna go, or at the very last minute, you can decide you'd rather stay home and do something else, right? The cast members don't think that way. They're not backstage trying to work out, I'm not sure if I'm feeling it tonight. I'm not sure I'm gonna really go and be a part of Les Mis. I'm the lead actor, but I'm not sure I'm gonna actually do that. No, that, that person as the cast member is confusing the role of the cast member and the prerogatives of the audience. In Psalm 96, God is the audience. You're the singer. We're called, sing, to the Lord, we, we underestimate the privilege and honor it is to have a God who delights to hear his people sing. 
He doesn't decide at the last moment, I'm not sure I'm gonna go. He inhabits the praises of his people where two or more are gathered in his name. He's in the midst of them. He is a faithful audience. Every Sunday he is here to hear his favorite instrument in the entire world. And it's not the cello, wonderful as cellos are. It's not, it's not a symphony of instruments. His favorite instrument in the world are the collected voices of his gathered people. He absolutely loves, and he never gets tired of hearing his gathered people sing. You and me, ordinary voices, he loves hearing us sing. I think the, uh, the great apologist, G.K. Chesterton, he talked about how God doesn't get tired of repetition, right? So there's a sense in which we come and we do the same thing, right? We, we sang songs last Sunday, we sing songs this Sunday. I mean, is he really gonna come and hear this stuff again? It's not like it's getting more awesome week after week for, for his holy ears, but yet he comes again and again. And Chesterton, I think, gets at this. He says this, because children have a bounding vitality, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. <laughs> for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony, it is possible, I love this, that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. Our God listens when we sing, and he delights when we sing. Let's just practice this right here, right now. So here's a well-known song and we're gonna sing it together. If you know how to sing the melody, sing the melody. If you know how to sing harmony, sing harmony. Ready? Holy, holy, holy. If we only knew how much delight God gets when his people sing. What we just heard might sound just average to our ears. God leans forward. God delights. He inhabits the singing, the praises of his people. You know, they say it's hard to make a billionaire smile. Why? I'm guessing because the billionaire has seen better. The billionaire has heard better, has, has encountered better things. We're talking about God. He's richer than anyone on this planet. It's not like God doesn't have better art at his disposal than my voice and our singing, right? He, he puts stars into places that science won't find for another 100 years. It's just tucked into closets in the galaxy somewhere. Never see them for ages and ages and ages. Better art than we've ever seen and it's just sitting in a closet a trillion light years away. That's the, that's the art he has access to. And yet he delights in our common voices, the singing of his people. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, uh, Wayne Grudem is a, a brilliant theologian, uh, Harvard graduate, very sharp man who's been serving the, the church of Jesus Christ in many ways. He arguably has written the best systematic theology work in this generation, um, loves God's people. So about 15 years ago, um, my senior pastor of the church that I was at in New Orleans, he asked me to preach on the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and he gave me my assigned text for Sunday which was the text Romans chapter nine, which will, yeah, it's scary. Romans chapter nine is a scary text and I'm in my late 20s and I was terrified and I was already afraid of preaching in public, which is just preaching. Um, <laughs> 
And I was terrified. And, and so I came into that morning feeling nauseous. I had studied probably 90 hours. I had overstudied for that message. And I came in feeling incredibly nauseous, pale face. And then somebody comes up to me and says, did you hear? Grudem is in the building. Grudem is here at Lakeview Christian Center this morning. And turned out it was his son, Elliot. Uh, but still, he was a Grudem. He still had Grudem as his last name. And Elliot was in the process of editing his dad's massive volume of systematic theology. So Elliot was a scary person as well for me. And I just remember going up to to the podium that morning and I didn't know what Elliot Grudem looked like but I knew he was out there somewhere and I thought, he is grading me. I am terrified, I'm preaching Romans 9 on the sovereignty of God and, and a Grudem is in the room and he's probably got a big fat red pen and he's just putting X, I just imagine him just putting X's after each point that I preach, nope, you know, <laughs> just burying his face in his hands, just thinking, I'm so disappointed with this kid up here who's he's trying really hard, but it's absolutely awful, right? We can think the same about God. <laughs> we can think he's just up there, big, fat, red pen. That's just a big nope. That stunk, right? We think that way. Look, at, we'll never sing to the Lord with boldness, without fear or shame. We'll never sing to him with joy if we think he's grading us. Because you know, of the quality of our voices and he's seen better art before. You know, big fat red pen in his hand. If that's your view of God, Psalm 96 has something very refreshing for us to hear. Look, we are a singing people and God, number two, God is a glorious God. He's a glorious God. This psalm doesn't just tell us to sing, it gives us a reason why. Look at that first word in, in verse four. Four. This is why we sing and declare his glory among the nations. For the Lord is great and highly praised. He's feared above all gods. That's your reason to sing. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This is in your notes. God is the reason why we sing. This should be the case. The only thing that should adequately explain the worship of the church is the glory of her God. That should be the only thing that makes sense of what we do when we gather is God is this great and more. It says verse four, the Lord is great and is highly praised. I like the older translation here. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You, you think about that. A great God must be greatly praised. The, the praise must be commensurate to the greatness of God. Not that we actually will get there, but the praise ought to be aiming there. It's great praise because he's a great God. It's proportionate to the greatness of the God that we praise. The point, what's the point of all this for us? I think the point is this, God's people don't offer half-hearted praise. Half-hearted worship. No, it's heart, soul, mind, strength. It's lips, it's life, it's voice, lungs, hands, feet, instruments. It's all his. He is great and he is greatly to be praised. Nothing should be held back when the church worships our God. Now, my dad planted a church in New Orleans before I was born. And the music that I grew up into in that church was filled with soulful sounds. Brother Walt Parker was the, 
the worship minister and leader, and he sang up front. He had a, a beautiful, soulful voice. My mom played the Hammond B3, and she would tune up dad when he preached and kind of just play some riffs back there. And then when they were singing together, mom would sing riffs into the empty spaces just to stir people up as we sang together. As a matter of fact, I'm going to try to recreate that just a little bit this morning, take a chance. So we, if Casey's back here, I think Casey, our organ player, I looked last night on Planning Center just to see, is Casey here? And Casey's here. So there's Casey, y'all. Casey. Um, so we grew up and we sang this song. It was really simple, but it came straight out of scriptures. So Casey, you got a C? All right, so there's a C. All right, and we would clap on two and four. So we'd go like this. If you got that C there. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Some of y'all know this song. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Sing it together if you know it. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me. I will rejoice, I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Yeah. So, so here's the thing. I felt like I was learning something even as a kid. So I'm six years old, probably the first time I sing that song. And here's what I'm learning. So I'm watching the, the congregation sing. He has made me glad. I'm learning Psalm 96. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He gives joy to the hearts of his people. He sustains us in sorrow. That's what I was learning. Look, the nations aren't drawn to praise God if his own people look like they're doing chores. He made us glad. I wonder if unbelievers who come in, maybe happen to come in and see us worshiping, I wonder if they ever leave and say, God seems real. If for no other reason, he seems real because those people sang as if he's giving them hope. They sang as if they were singing from joy, deep running joy, that's how they sang. God is the reason why we sing. Next point, every rival God leaves us empty. That's a reminder of verse five. In the original Hebrew, it's a play on words. It says, all the Elohim of the people are Elihim. You change one letter from Elohim to Elihim. The word Elohim is the word for God. Elihim is the word for nothing. The word idol literally means nothing. In other words, what the people treat as gods are actually nothing. There's nothing there. It's just wood. It's just a stone. It has no animating life. It has no possibility for bringing lasting joy or hope or change. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? All the gods of the nations are worthless idols. It means you can 
You can buy all the houses you ever dreamed of. You can buy all the cars. You can get the trophy spouse. You can get the corner office. You can, you can lay your hands on every joy that this world holds out before us, but you'll never know rest a day in your life apart from Christ. You will never know rest. That's why Augustine said hundreds of years ago, he said, God, you have so made us that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. All the, all the trinkets, all the self-help solutions, all man-made religion is just one more in an endless series of broken cisterns that hold no water. Just one more broken cistern. Nothing in it. No satisfying ability. All, all the beauty your soul longs for. It's not on the next website. You look, look at verse six. I mean, here's the living God. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You look at the magazine rack at the grocery store. What is most of that stuff offering? It's offering you two things, strength and beauty. The very things that God is for his people. Look, if we only knew where true strength and true beauty are found, the Lord is the strength of his people and his people should know it well. Jesus gives beauty for ashes. Jesus makes all things new. He is strength. He is beauty. That's why we sing the way that we do, church. The only explanation for the singing of the church is the greatness and strength and beauty of our God. And I love where where this psalm takes us next, from a singing people to a glorious God to a global summons. A global summons. And the point right underneath that, you can go ahead and fill it in right now. We call the nations to worship. We call the nations to worship. Why do, we, why do we do what we've done so far this morning? Why do we send out workers all over the world, including to places that are hostile to Christian witness? Places that say, we don't want you to come over here. Closed countries where it's illegal to proselytize or to convert to Christianity. We do it because verse three tells us to. We do it because verse three is a command of the people of God to do what? Declare his glory among the nations, not some of them, not the ones that want you to declare his glory. All the nations, we are called to declare his glory among the nations. There are no closed nations in the Bible. It's a global invocation that believers walk out in the world and say, everyone Worship him, all of you. Not asking where you're from, not asking your background or your religion. All of you are called by the one true and living God to ascribe glory to his name. I remember the first time I heard the Muslim call to prayer on an overseas trip in the Horn of Africa. I'll never forget that sound. The first time my ears had ever heard it, suddenly in the midst of the city, you just heard over the loudspeaker the singing voice. And you'd hear it at all the appointed hours, the call to prayer, and that voice would just sing. It would just be broadcast all over the city. Everywhere you walked in the city, you could hear it ringing out, calling the people to prayer. And unless you learned the language, you didn't know what they were saying. But here's what's being broadcast over the city. Here's a translation. They're singing these words. God is the greatest. I bear witness that there is none worthy of worship except God. I bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of God. Hasten to prayer. Hasten to salvation or security. God is the greatest. There is no God but Allah. 
And that call goes out at various times throughout the day. And one of them goes out even before sunrise. And the one that goes out before sunrise sometimes has this extra line thrown in. And the last line that's sung is saying this, prayer is better than sleep. For those who are inclined to skip prayer, the last word that's sung is prayer is better than sleep. Repeated again, prayer is better than sleep. It's ringing out. It's calling the people to worship. Sat in a, in a house with Devout Muslim men, we were sitting on the floor and eating in their home and they, as soon as the call rang out, they graciously stood up and excused themselves to go and pray and they came back after. They heard the call and they answered. The call to prayer went out and they answered. In our passage, there is a call, but it is wider. It is not limited to one city. Verse seven through 12 is a call to worship that rings out throughout the entire cosmos. The entire world is called and it's heard in every language and it's summoning the entire world. What what do we send these friends out to do? To say, verse 12, to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We're serving notice to the nations that there's a king on an everlasting throne and his name is Jesus and he's Lord over all the nations and he commands all people everywhere to repent Mercy, clemency is offered on behalf of the kingdom to every humble sinner who comes to take it. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. We're sending them out to declare Jesus among the nations that the the one and only Savior has come and he lived a perfect life. He lived the life that we couldn't live and he died on the cross and he bore our sins in his body on the tree as a substitute in my place, in your place. And then he rose and conquered our enemies, sin and death and Satan. And this king now reigns over the nations and he is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. But whoever trusts in him now while it's day, now while there's mercy, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what these friends go out to do. They're saying, sins forgiven, conscience cleansed, death defeated, adoption into God's forever family, destined for pleasures evermore at his right hand. Get you some, come in. You're invited to a feast, the table's bending under God's grace. Come. Come get mercy. Look, our praying and our giving and our going are all aimed at one thing, global worship. The nations must hear. Let the nations be glad. We are saying together, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. All of you, ascribe, you Hue, you Balot, you Kurd, you Egyptians, you people of Slovenia, you Arundo people, come sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. And we do this in the confidence that our labor will not be in vain. We call the nations to worship knowing, next point, the nations will join in the singing. The nations will join in the singing. When the nations hear that the Lord reigns, the upshot of gospel witness leading to the day of the Lord's return is what? It's verse 11 and 12. This is what happens on the other side of sending and praying and giving. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad, but not just the heavens. 
on earth as it is in heaven. The, the rejoicing of earth matches the rejoicing of heaven. Let the heavens be glad and the earth just gets swept up into the joy of heaven. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let all the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy. What a note of gladness is in this text. The Great Commission is an awesome prospect. It's the prospect of good news spreading around the world. The Great Commission is, is a joy project. It's a joy to the world project. You think about the entire Bible in this way, in a profound way, we were created by God for song. And our voices were broken at the fall. And we've been croaking ever since. Matter of fact, Romans 8 says, all of creation is groaning. It's groaning. It's waiting for this day of the arrival of God's finale, the finale of the story. J.B. Phillips translates creation groaning as creation standing on its tiptoes, waiting for God to come and finish the story in a final kind of way. Our, our voices were broken by the fall, but Isaiah prophesied centuries before Jesus came, the world would sing again. He prophesied the nations would sing. Matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 35 points the finale of God's redemptive story when his exiled people return home. It's one of my favorite passages. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with what? Singing unto Zion. An everlasting joy, if you looked at every one of them, you'd see everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. Christians are a singing people. We have always been a singing people. We will always be a singing people. Christian friend, when God saved you, he retuned your voice so that you might sing a new song to the Lord, so that you might sing and declare his glory among the nations. Another psalm says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to my God. Many, what's the, what's the effect of the hymn of praise that he's put in our hearts? Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's a, such a confident statement. How could you possibly guarantee that the song that's in my heart put there by God will result in people seeing and fearing and trusting in him. How do you know that's gonna happen? We know because when Jesus told his disciples to go, he gave them one massive confidence booster. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with the disciples. It wasn't their gifts or their abilities or their winning personalities. It wasn't any of that. The confidence booster was this. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. <laughs> Go. Go make disciples. I have the authority to win them. Jesus, we know the nations will join in the singing because Jesus said they would. <laughs> because Jesus has the authority to break through centuries of resistance. We know the nations will join in the singing because not only that, but because we have a window into the future where it actually happens. What will become of the nations? that are right now as we sit here still shrouded in darkness without the light 
of the gospel. Revelation 5 says, I'm glad you asked. Here's what's gonna happen among the nations that are still shrouded in darkness. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang, looky there, a new song, saying, worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is a window into the future. All the nations will hear and men and women from every tribe and tongue will sing, (laughs) will sing. Missions exist because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, Piper said, missions will be no more. What kind of church do you want to be? That we can, we can live for passing pleasures or we can spread eternal joy. Is that not the ultimate no-brainer? We can spread eternal joy. Salvation, if you're a believer in Christ, has retuned your voice. You can sing now. You can't not sing now. It's impossible. Your voice has been retuned. And here's God's call on your newfound voice. Sing a new song. Sing and bless his name. Sing and tell of his salvation from day to day. Sing and declare his glory among the nations. Sing, what's the reason? Sing for he is great and greatly to be praised.